Good morning. Y'all, I'm so excited to be up here preaching. It has been a minute. Um, and I'm extra excited that we're preaching on the Gospel of Mark. Happens to be my favorite. Um, those of you that don't know, my name is Allison. Hi. Um, one of the pastors here. And um, not, like many of you, not originally from here. Um, I am what we call a transplant, I guess, but not a northern transplant, actually southern, from Atlanta. Um, I came here, gosh, what, 12, 13, 14 years ago, Wesley, 14? I don't remember, but I came here <laughs> to go to, 14, yeah, because it's 2010, um, to go to uh, Divinity School at Duke, um, and unlike most people on a track to become a pastor, I did not get the pastor degree. I actually was on track to become a professor. It was more in the academic route, and that was the degree I got there. As we can see, God had different plans for me than I thought. Um, but one of the things I had to do as part of my degree, uh, Master of Theological Studies, was to do a thesis paper at the end, kind of like a much smaller version of a dissertation. Um, and mine was actually on Mark. So I'm really excited to preach a few times for you in this series and just share a little bit of my insights from that. Um, and yeah, really also just excited to hear the rest of the preaching team and, and what they're gonna bring and, and what God's gonna reveal in this. So yeah, so we're gonna dig in today. Um, we are in this season of New Beginnings, Reimagining New Beginnings, and we're going through very slowly through the first chapter of Mark. Today I'm preaching on verses 9 through 13. Um, yeah, and apparently, so today's the 14th, apparently the 12th, January 12th, is like the day that like most people give up on their New Year's resolutions. So feels great that we're still talking about new beginnings and, and the idea of being which New Year's is just a day, y'all. Every day is new and a new opportunity, and grace is new every day. So, love this. All right, so we're going to dig in. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to go ahead and read the passage we're talking about before we kind of get into the, the message today. And I'm going to try to rein myself in because, y'all, I could just go on and on how much I love this gospel. But All right, Holy Spirit, Lord God, Lord, I just pray that you come upon us today. And Lord, as we are reading these words Lord, these, these short verses that have so much in them, Lord, Lord, that you will speak to us, that your spirit will intercede, Lord, and that wherever we're at individually, God, what we need to hear from you today, Lord, in these many things I want to say, Lord, that, that your voice will speak to each of us, the words you have for us, God, because scripture is alive and it is moving and in teaching and growing us every day through your spirit god so i just pray that you will come upon us lord and do that for us today pray this in the name of jesus amen all right so starting in verse 9 in those days jesus came from nazareth of galilee and was baptized by john in the jordan and when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Then the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, so if you'll recall from last week, um, for those of you that heard Justin's message, or just if you want to look back and, and read the first verse of this gospel, it says, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. However, the main character, of which it's supposed to be a part of, doesn't actually show up until verse 9. So, following the prophecies of Isaiah before this, it's John who is first introduced, John the Baptist, and he's linked to this messianic prophecy, a prophecy concerning the Messiah, the one believed to be sent by God as salvation for Israel. And these prophecies play an important role in Mark's gospel, as we'll see, and we'll come back to them as as we just go through today's message alone. Um, But John the Baptist is described and is linked to this prophecy as the one who will come before Jesus, preparing the way for his arrival. So how does John prepare the way? Well, besides being kind of weird, I mean, as they describe him, um, John is preparing people's hearts. He, like most prophets, is calling God's people to repentance and is marking that repentance with a baptism of water. Then we have in verse 9 here, Jesus enters the story for the first time. And unlike in Matthew or Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel account gives us pretty much no background information about Jesus up until this point. There's no birth narrative or cosmic orientation like in John's gospel. His story begins here with John the Baptist at the River Jordan. John, who has been baptizing people, preparing their hearts for the arrival of the Messiah, now baptizes Jesus, the one whom he's been preparing the way for. And um, Jesus' baptism is obviously different, a little different than the ones that he's been doing. Um, It's marked with this miraculous event of the heavens being torn open. And I've seen this portrayed in renditions as like clouds parting and the sun shining on God and this dove coming down. But, um, and I I have one image such as that if you want to put it up, yeah. Which, first of all, he's not, he's being sprinkled. Those of us who have been sprinkled baptism, it counts, see? Um, (laughs) So this, to me that feels kind of mundane for the language that uh, Mark's using here. I have another one that I feel, feels more like, bah, what's happening? (laughs) So yeah, it's fun if you look them up, there's a lot of them. My, I didn't put them up here for the sake of time because y'all would be laughing forever, but my husband he's been playing with the AI-generated art and started just typing in random things like the Ninja Turtles were there and all this. It's, y'all, he entertains himself for hours on that thing. <laughs> anyway, but the verb here that's being used, schisminuous, torn open, is unusual. And it evokes kind of a particular biblical image. Uh, this language of the heavens being torn open is used in several Old Testament stories as a precursor to an important divine revelation. And indeed, in the next verse, we do have a declaration from God over Jesus. This voice from the heavens saying, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And this declaration over Jesus is actually alluding to another prophecy from Isaiah. We're going to find several of them here. And this is from chapter 41. 
uh, or sorry, 42, verse 1, and it says, Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this prophecy is also understood to be about the Messiah, just as the prophecy before uh, to introduce John and his role in the story. Um, so here in the first 11 verses of Mark, we already have two references very clearly to these messianic prophecies of Isaiah in connection with Jesus. Remember again, we don't really know a lot about him, but there's a lot here. So then going back to that vision of the heavens being torn open, um, a number of scholars also believe that that's also a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah in chapter 64. Uh, it says, oh, that you would open the heavens and come down, which is really beautiful to think about. All these words of a long dead prophet, of a people desperate for a Messiah, a savior, though they had very different ideas about what that actually meant. But here these prophecies are woven so beautifully together in the person of Jesus as he's introduced in the story. So here we have Jesus stepping into the narrative at what is believed to be the beginning of his earthly ministry. We don't know what he has done before this, much anything about him, except that he comes from Nazareth. But for Mark, that doesn't matter. This is the beginning, this baptism that's ushering in something new. So recall in verse 8, right before this, uh, if you'll recall, John declares of the one coming after him, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And indeed, Jesus becomes the first to receive both here. Jesus is, um, you know, baptized, and it says, as he's coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends down like a dove. This is just beautiful imagery, right? I love it. Beautiful. Um, after the heavens are torn open, this crazy thing. And I've been reading a lot of fantasy lately, um, and one of the series has a lot of these like portals between realms and stuff. So I'm just picturing like this actual portal opening up to another world, and you're just like, what? Uh, <laughs> I have my my own um, image of this, and it really struck me today um, as we were we're singing about um, death is just a doorway into resurrected life. This idea of this door opening up in the sky and giving this image of resurrected life, of heaven. Like how crazy, right? And from that doorway, from that portal, from that tear in the fabric of the universe, a voice calls out. And the spirit comes down upon Jesus, like a dove. So why a dove? So this is a question I started Googling, I'm like, well, what's up with the dove, right? Um, well, <laughs> this is, right, a visible thing that people are obviously witnessing and sharing, and um, spirit presumably is something you can't see, at least that we, we can't see. Um, so it had to show up as something, it's coming from the sky, why not a dove? That's one theory. 
Um, <laughs> there's also is some biblical significance um, to the image of a dove that goes back to the flood narrative, another instance where the heavens are described as being torn open, but in that instance it means lots and lots of rain. We, we sometimes will use that today when the downpour comes, right? So Noah sends out, after, after the rain, Noah sends out a dove to see if there's any dry land. And the dove brings back an olive branch. So both the dove and the olive branch then are understood to represent peace. As God declaring peace with mankind after the flood. So it's not, it's not too big of a stretch to find some meaning in that image here. Um, that Jesus, as he steps into this role will ultimately reconcile humanity with God for good, right? That, that symbol of peace. Uh, another important imagery that comes to life in these short verses also brings us back to Genesis um, in the creation narrative. So in the first creation narrative, before the earth is giving order and form, the spirit is um, described as hovering over the waters, right? And here we have that same spirit coming down upon Jesus, as he's raised up from the waters. Use your spiritual imagination with me this morning, your artistic imagination, and just, just, just use it. Because Mark's gospel, it's, a, it's so easy to read it and be like, compared to other gospels, and be like, there's just not much here, right? It's short, it's to the point, but there's so much there. That's what I kind of want to get you to see. So just follow along with me with that. Um... So another thing that's super important to mention here is the significance of the Trinity as it's displayed in this passage. Here we have Jesus, who God declares the Son, and we have the voice of God from heaven, the Father, and the Spirit, like a dove, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, so the, uh, the concept of the Trinity can be kind of heady, kind of difficult to grasp, for a lot of people, um, I've certainly struggled with it. The idea that God can exist both as a singular entity, right? There's one God, and yet three persons. It's, and you know, how that might work, and it's a fun discussion, fun theological tangent that I'm not gonna go on. However, if you're in one of our small groups, or if you attend the story this week, I did put just a little taste of that in the discussion for the week, so. If you want to talk about it, you'll get the chance. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that. We'll see this image of the Trinity continue to come up, okay? All right, so immediately after Jesus' baptism, we're going to move on from Jesus' baptism. Immediately after his baptism, as the first act in his ministry, Jesus goes deeper into the wilderness, right? John's already out in the wilderness baptism, and it says he drove him out into the wilderness, so he's going even further, not back towards the people that presumably Jesus is to minister to, but out further into the wilderness. And we're told he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. I love the, the vivid imagery that Mark gives with so few descriptive words, right? The verb he chooses here is striking, striking. 
the spirit immediately drove him out. This is not a Stanley Cup. I'm not one of those cool girls, but I like it. Um, so this verb, another verb, first, the immediately. You're going to find that a lot. It's just a theme of Mark's gospel. Everything's immediately. It gives a sense of urgency and purpose to what God is doing. So that, that word immediately will pop up a lot. Just something to pay attention to. Um, but the syntax here is really interesting, right? The spirit drove Jesus out. The spirit, which has just fallen upon Jesus at his baptism, is the subject here. And Jesus is the object. In Luke's retelling, this is described a little differently. Luke, um, in this, first his, his temptation narrative is a bit longer. It has a bit more detail. But he says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Jesus here is the object of a, a much more gentler verse, right? Led by the Spirit versus this drove out, though the Spirit is still the actor, the spirit is leading, the spirit is driving. And once again, I'm really tempted to devolve into a theological tangent about the inner workings of the Holy Spirit and, or of the Trinity and even of the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to rein myself in because there's just so much here. But I did want to make one point. Like at the baptism in this temptation narrative, we do see all three persons of the Trinity at work here in such a beautiful way. So the Spirit drives Jesus, the Son, into the wilderness, and Jesus, in going, submits to the will of the Spirit. That's really important. And then the Father, God, is caring for Jesus through the ministry of the angels, God's messengers and servants, while he's out there. And that's an element that's in this narrative that isn't in uh, Luke's version of this, I think is really interesting, the presence of the angels. So, though, it's interesting because though Father, Son, and Spirit seem like separate entities, we, we see them in both these instances working together to achieve God's purposes, and that's super important. Side note, if the descriptors Father, Son, and Spirit are tripping you up, don't let them. This is, this is the biblical language that is used, but you can, you can say mother, daughter, spirit if, if you need to. Like, it's not a big deal. To me, anyway. But this is how they're talked about. Um, okay, so back to the verb drove out. I kind of did go on a tangent, sorry. It's used in the story of the temptation in the wilderness also draws us back to creation like before in the baptism. In the creation narrative, we see Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden because of sin. And here, Jesus is also driven out into the wilderness, but he is driven out not for disobedience, but in obedience to the will of the Spirit. So there's this, this reversal of the fall, right, already happening in Jesus's first actions of his ministry. So the mention of there being wild beast, I think, uh, is something we can also Link back to the narrative, right? Uh, God creates beasts of the earth, it says, and places them in the care of humanity. But we can also see how wild beasts being mentioned adds this element of danger. 
in what Jesus is doing here. That Jesus, in going out into the wilderness, is also placing himself in potential danger. And the mention of these wild beasts certainly gives us that indication. But the mention of wild beasts might have a different meaning and significance for the original audience of this gospel. So Mark is what we believe to be one of like the earliest written that we have evidence forms of a gospel. Presumably, lots other things might have been written that we've lost, right? Um, but the first writing we have of it was happening right during the um, persecutions of Christians under the emperor Nero. And during that time, Mark's audience was actively bearing witness to their fellow believers being thrown into pits and mauled and devoured by such beasts. What would it mean to them that Jesus enters willingly into similar danger here at the beginning of his ministry? I wonder. So verse 13 here, 1 through 13. Verse 13 ends what's considered to be the prologue of Mark's gospel. In literature, a prologue is meant to provide background information or context about a story, characters, or setting. It can also set the tone for a book, introduce main themes, foreshadow events that are going to happen later in the story. And as we move on, you'll see verse 14 kind of shifts and the action of the story really begins. While the first 13 verses provide us with everything Mark believes we need to know in order to understand the rest of the story. So let's think. How does Mark's prologue serve the rest of the story? What does it tell us as readers? What questions does it leave us asking? Well, so we've talked a lot about like all of these symbols that we see happening in these few short words, right? And so I think Mark's gospel lays out pretty clearly who Jesus is. The Son of God, the Messiah, the one prophesied and promised long ago. But this is something only we as the readers know, right? As we move along the story, the characters and the people that Jesus is encountering don't have this information in this context. So that's something to keep in mind as we move along, okay? Another thing to note is the prologue tells us who, but not how. How is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the stronger one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? How does he please the Father God? This is also what the story is aiming to answer as we move on. So from this point on, like I said, the, the attention of the narrative shifts from the reader to Jesus and the various characters of the story. That is until the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, which is considered the epilogue, right? So I don't, and I warned Justin I was doing this, I don't want to give away too much of his Easter message in a couple months, but I do want to jump ahead a little bit to that epilogue because I think this prologue and this epilogue are really meant to go together and give us kind of the thesis of Mark, if you will. So the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel end on a bit of a cliffhanger, 
We have the scene at the empty tomb and the good news of the angel shared with the women. And then Mark's, Mark writes in verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's an odd ending for the gospel, kind of uncomfortable. And later scribes clearly felt that way because um, they, they kind of fill, fluffed up the ending. A lot of your um, Bibles will have more verses than that, but there should be a footnote saying this is where our earliest manuscript of Mark ends, right? Because we know the story doesn't truly end there, not only because the other Gospels have more, but also because Mark's telling this story at all, right? Clearly, the message spread, and it spread to such an extent that the Roman government found it threatening enough to hunt down and murder those caught telling the story. Yet, Mark chose to end his gospel on this part, this apparent failure of the followers of Jesus, which you will find as you continue reading through Mark, that theme popping up again and again, where they don't get it. It seems so clear here in the prologue. They don't get it. Indeed, yeah, in the prologue, who Jesus is and his spirit-driven purpose seems so clear to us as the readers. But we will see it's much harder to grasp in actuality, right? And isn't that what makes it so real? Because when everything is laid out so clearly, with all of the biblical imagery and prophecy surrounding Jesus in the first 13 verses, it's easy to accept who Jesus is. But in the midst of everyday encounters, where systems are in place that keep us ignorant to the evils we are unwittingly a part of, where we aim to be good and to do what is right and still seem to come up short, where our instinct tells us to flee from danger and not face it head on, where we're overloaded with messages telling us who and what we need to be in order to obtain some sort of perfection, where we are constantly facing sickness, hardship, and death. It's a lot harder to understand exactly who Jesus is and what he offers us in the midst of all of that. So we have this prologue where we meet Jesus and know clearly who he is, and we have this epilogue where Jesus is gone and we are left with our own human nature to contend with as we respond to the story. And then there's a story in between, which I'm really excited for us to dig into. My hope for you and me is um, we let the Spirit speak to us and encounter us throughout this study, through this teaching and this, this telling, um, is that we would not shy away from what seems like a failure. Because the themes of repentance and redemption and reconciliation and recreation are laid out so clearly in this prologue. They are meant to lead us along the story and continue into the story beyond, that of our own lives. This is the story of Jesus that we are meant to encounter here and beyond. So we're going to draw out. We got our prologue. We're going to get into the story of Jesus. We're going to walk through the new beginnings we're going to keep going all the way through Mark. I'm so excited. Um, 
But this morning, we're going to have a chance to respond to that, to respond to this, this knowledge of who Jesus is. And we're going to do that through the act, like we do every day, through the act of communion, right? Every week, we participate in communion because we are constantly, the story is constantly bringing us back to the table here. So today, as you come up and you take the bread, the broken body of Christ, because, right, all of this is leading to that, to the, to the cross, and as you, you take a chunk of the bread and you, you dip it into the cup to partake in, I encourage you just to take a moment and reflect on who Jesus is, not only in the story, but in your story, to take this prologue and bring it all the way into your life. So we're going to move on to a time of communion. Um, you'll come out this way and wait that way and then back this way right that way and back this way there's a <laughs> a, a gluten-free option if you need it over here as well certainly just let our servers know everyone is welcome to the table to come and respond and worship through communion so dear god as we come and respond to worship today lord i just pray that you your spirit, Lord, will just come upon our hearts. Remind us what this means to us, Lord. That in, in the midst of everything in life, remind us who you are to us. Who you are, Lord. <clears throat>